You're listening to the podcast of Anthem Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, visit us online at anthemcolumbia.com. It is uh, Easter Sunday, and so um, I, I asked my daughters, um, why do we celebrate Easter? And so you, this is my wife up here actually worshiping and, and reading, and so she's the, the mother to four beautiful daughters at home, right? And so you can imagine the scene with my, my daughters, and, and I was, we're sitting around the table, and uh, is it Mike going in and out? Okay. So uh, sitting around the dinner table, and I was just asking my daughters, I said, why do we celebrate Easter? I think, there's kids, right? They should know the answer to that, huh? No, not so much. They're, granted, they're, you know, the older two are like six and almost five. The five-year-old goes, why do we celebrate Easter? She said, Jesus's birthday? Close, not, not so much. So I remember even asking this on a college campus. I used to be a college pastor at Iowa State University, home of the Cyclones, Ames, Iowa. Woo! All right, yeah, some people are like, yeah, they know that. Um, so I asked college students, college students, you're supposed to be the best and the brightest. And so here I am on a college campus the week of Easter, and I was asking college students, what do we celebrate on Easter Sunday? And you thought, you would have thought that I was speaking a different language, like the level of bewilderment that people had, like, what are you, what are you talking about? I said, Why do we, what do we celebrate on Easter Sunday? And there's confusion. Some of them are just like, just stated their denomination as if that was like the acceptable answer. Like, oh, I'm this. And it's like, that didn't answer my question. Uh, and there's understandable amounts of confusion with chocolate bunnies and colored eggs and wicker baskets. What those have to do with Easter, I'm not sure. But to be clear, Easter Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. That is that we're celebrating that the tomb that Jesus was buried in is empty because Jesus rose from the dead. Now we need to unpack, well, what does that mean? Okay, I understand that, that he resurrected, but what implications does that have on our life today? And so we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, you can open there. It'll be on the screen. You can use your apps. If you don't own a Bible, we'll give you one. Just swing by Info Central. You don't even have to trade us your info card. You can just take a Bible. Um, and so that's our Easter gift to you. But we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning, and we're going to be unpacking that. Why, what is the significance of the resurrection? All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'm going to start in verse 3 and 4. And this is Paul, and he's writing to this church in Corinth. If you know anything about the church in Corinth, uh, they're a little bit messed up. They have all sorts. It's, It's as if a church was started in Las Vegas, Nevada. That's about the crowd that he's writing to. They are confused, um, and, and so he's addressing some misconceptions that they have. And he goes on in, in chapter uh, 15, starting in verse 3, he tells them, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Let's stop there. Again, I said in passing that what we celebrate on Easter is the resurrection. It's pretty interesting, right? (laughs) When you think about it, like what we are here to worship today as somebody that is dead that came to life. 
I mean, the scripture, he talks about that Jesus, as he said there, Jesus died. It wasn't a death of natural causes. It wasn't, uh, he died at the hands of religious leaders. He was led to the cross. There wasn't an electric chair, no lethal injection. But at that point, it was being nailed to a cross where Jesus ultimately breathed his last. And then they took him down from the cross and they laid him in a tomb. And not only did they do that, they, they took it and they rolled a big stone in front of the tomb. And even Pilate put his seal like on the, on the stone so as to make sure that nobody would break that seal. You get the impression that the religious leaders not only wanted him dead, but they wanted him to stay dead. I mean, does that make sense? That Not only did they roll a stone like in front of a, a dead person's tomb, they also then posted a guard of Roman centurions that would have guarded the tomb. I love it even in one of the gospel accounts, Pilate's like, the, the religious leaders are asking for a guard, and, and Pilate's like, go make it as secure as you can. Like, what are you going to do if, if a person is dead and comes to life? And so they wanted him dead, and they wanted him to stay dead. But as we heard from the reading, and as we saw in the scriptures, that's not what happened. Jesus came back to life. And understandably, that, that hadn't happened before that, that you had somebody that was dead, buried for three days, and came back to life. And people at that point, they're like, I can't comprehend what you're saying. Like, I understand it intellectually, but I just can't believe that. And so Paul is writing uh, this chapter to clarify some of that confusion. And he's saying it's understandable, and so let me give you some proofs. And so he goes on, if you're reading in your text, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, he says, Then, after he resurrected Jesus, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. What's he saying in that verse? He's saying, I know this might be hard to understand, but Jesus, he, when he resurrected, he appeared to a bunch of people, 500, more than 500. And then he catches the line there, most are st whom still alive. What's he saying? He's saying, this happened. There's eyewitness accounts everywhere. Go and just ask people. Now you think about that. I want to time out and have a little bit of fun here. Can you imagine if you were one of the 500 plus that Jesus like appeared to? Like how would you have responded to see somebody resurrect does that make sense? Like when somebody has a, a new baby, there's a generally kind of a common response. Like, oh, your baby's so cute. Even if the baby's not cute, you just say, oh, like your baby's so beautiful, so cute. Congratulations. That's how you respond to new life. How do you respond to resurrected life? Okay, let me help you understand why this would have been hard for them to comprehend. Can you imagine going to a cemetery to visit the gravesite perhaps one of your deceased family members. Let's just say grandpa, right? Can you imagine like walking out to grandpa's grave and like getting there and all of a sudden like the dirt is like kind of tore up around the grave and there's papa just, just hanging out by his grave. Not like resurrected, not looking like something like out of the walking dead, but, but looking a little bit younger, full of life, maybe a little dirty from having come out. And there's papa and he's like, hey, Okay. Do you understand, like, resurrected life? Like, what do you do? You're like, ah! Like, you, you're, there's fear, but then there's excitement. And it's like, what do you 
do with resurrected life. It would be slightly overwhelming and confusing. And then can you imagine if you went back to your family like, Papa resurrected, he's coming over for Easter. I think we should let him cut the ham today. Like, right? Like, what, how would you respond to, to resurrected life? We, we do have at least one uh, of those accounts, and, and I don't have it on the screen, but in the Gospel of John, you see Thomas. Thomas was one of the disciples, and he wasn't there when Jesus first kind of appeared to the, the disciples. And the disciples were like, Thomas, we saw Jesus. And I don't know if you remember the account, and he gets labeled like doubting Thomas for this, but understandably so, right? He's like, mm-mm. Like, unless I see, like, unless I can put my hands in his nail holes and my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe it. <laughs> Scripture records eight days later, Jesus shows up, and there they are. He's like, peace be with you. Hey, Thomas, <laughs> calls him, said, hey, you want to go ahead and touch my hands, like, touch my side? I just, can you imagine? I don't know what the tone was in that, if Jesus was really somber, like, Thomas, touch my hands. Or if he's like, you want to do it? Do it. Touch it. But nonetheless, like, he's there resurrected. Guys, you have to understand that, that this no small thing when he says there's eyewitness accounts. This isn't some mass hallucination. There's 500 plus people. His disciples, this is a huge proof that Paul is providing that Jesus actually rose. He's saying, ask people. Here's another one that's implied in that, that the tomb was empty. You understand, I, I understand it's natural to, to at times have doubts. But in their day and now, the tomb is empty. Do you understand the level of proof that that is? That at any point, early on, as the Christian movement is taking hold, that if the tomb was not empty, if it is still sealed with Pilate saying, they could have ended the whole movement of Christianity by taking one field trip to that cemetery. Do you understand that they, that they couldn't do that, though? They couldn't squelch the movement because Jesus had resurrected. The tomb was empty. And so the proof that is in the empty tomb. So Jesus appeared to a massive amount of people. The tomb is empty. And then Paul goes on to provide yet another proof. He's going to say in verse 8, He, last of all, he appeared to me one untimely born. He appeared also to me. Paul's saying, he's appeared to a lot of people. The tomb is empty. And let me tell you, he also appeared to me. The level of proof that would have been because Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was known for persecuting the church, killing Christians. And now here he was leading the church movement as a missionary. Saying, you want some proof? Look at what happened. And guys, what was the change? Paul had seen the resurrected Jesus. That was what, what brought about all this change is he met with the resurrected Jesus. And so, in light of all that, people are still doubting. In, in, in light of all those proofs, people are still doubting. So we continue in verse 12. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can, despite all that, how can some of you say, that there is no resurrection of the dead. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, 
then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that he did not, uh, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And in Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The question on the front is, why is the resurrection important? Verse 12, you see there? It's a, they're, they're, some of them are saying there is no resurrection of the dead. They're saying in verse 13, well then, not even Jesus rose from the dead. Why is the resurrection important? Because if Jesus stayed dead, when we die, we're all just going to stay dead as well. Because if Jesus didn't rise, <laughs> you and I don't have any hope of rising. And so it's important because if Jesus didn't resurrect, none of us resurrected. And it's also important is if Jesus didn't resurrect, then he's a liar because he didn't do what he said he was going to clearly do. So if the tomb is still filled up, Jesus is a liar, and then this life is all there is because there's no life after death. But the reality that we see and that we know to be true is that, that he did resurrect that he has risen. So the empty tomb validates the claims of Jesus as well as the Old Testament prophets. It demonstrates that God accepted Jesus's sacrifice on our behalf. It shows that God has the power to raise people from the dead. It guarantees that the bodies of those who believe in Jesus will resurrect. They are not going to remain dead. See, the resurrection, the empty tomb, ensures that there is life after life. Okay, I've got a little illustration. You didn't even see it here. It's just right in front of your noses the whole time. See this big old yellow rope? I mean, it's, it goes a ways, right? I don't know if you know where I live, but I live clear out on the, the uh, north side of town. Can you imagine for a while if I bought all the rope I could from Menards, Home Depot, Lowe's, tied it all together, and I ran it from my home all the way out there on Reamer Road to this spot today. You understand, we're talking miles of rope, right? And if you can imagine it there, just keep going and imagine that the rope just keeps going, wraps around the world. I mean, it is, it is forever, okay? So I've got all this extra rope. What we're talking about is this little black piece, you see that? That little black here, that's going to represent this life. You see how small that is? And I got to thank Francis Chan. He was the one that, uh, that I first saw this illustration. But this, this black represents this life. And this yellow, the rest, all the way. You see how it keeps going? I mean, I can keep pulling this, right? It's not all the way to Reamer Road. It's just around the corner in case anybody was wondering. But, but you can imagine, right, that all this represents... Life after life, eternity, forever. And what's that question here? Is it, is it this life is all there is? Or is there something after this? Life after life. Does that make sense? Is this life all there is? Or is there something after that? And what they're saying, 
the, the question that they're having and that he's addressing is some of them are saying, there's no life after this. There's no resurrection. It's this life, and then you die, and that's it. You understand what that means? Okay, so I'm just going to pop this end off. Some people are saying, this is all there is. Okay, so let me ask you. Does the resurrection affect your life? Let me, another way to ask it is, what if they found that, that Jesus was still dead? That the tomb wasn't empty? They, I don't know how they would go about it. Let's just say they were looking in the wrong one. They're like, oh, Jay, Jesus, we, uh, he's in the next one. Oh, the, the, the 500 plus witnesses, I mean, they're going to have to discredit a lot. A mass hallucination, the willingness of the disciples to die. I mean, maybe they're just crazy. The fact that God is still moving. You can't dismiss all the evidence, but let's just say for the argument's sake that you were able to dismiss all the evidence that Jesus is still in the tomb. Would that affect your life in any way? If Jesus was still found to be dead, Paul is saying, yeah, it should affect your life in every way. Because if this is all there is, if this was it, just this life, and there's no eternal life, he's saying, like, you need to maximize this. If there's no eternal life and this is all there is, you got to live it up here because that's it. He goes on in verse 32. He says, what do I gain, humanly speaking, if I fought with the beast in Ephesus? He's referencing like just the suffering and the trial that he endured in a place because he goes on to quote their philosophers, the, the Greek proverb. He says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. We have a similar phrase to that kind of concept here in America. It lasted like about a week or two on, on Twitter. YOLO, you ever heard of that? Hashtag YOLO. Our college students like, yeah, our older people like, Can, you lost me with Twitter. Okay, so I love, I'm glad you're here. Uh, but this idea, you only live once. That's what YOLO stands for. You only live once, right? So YOLO doesn't take into account that it's just saying this is all there is right here. You only live once. And usually it's said by some young person right before they do something incredibly stupid. You only live once, yellow. And then they jump out in front of a moving vehicle. I don't know. Like, <laughs> Paul says, if that's true, if that's true, if you only live once, then eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. <laughs> when I was at Iowa State, I was a young ministry staff guy at this point, and I watched a pastor in the church foyer confront a young guy that had this kind of YOLO mentality. He's there in the church foyer, but he's saying, I don't believe in heaven or hell. I believe that this life is all there is. And I believe taking a page out of Paul's book, the young pastor said, well, if this is all there is, you better start drinking a whole lot more beer and sleeping around a whole lot more. Like, if this is all, I'm like watching a pastor give this advice. I'm like, can you do that? Like, but it's in line. It's like, if this is all there is, you better live it up. If this is it right here, you better go hard. You better maximize this life. Because if you only truly live once, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, let me ask you, does the way that you're living take into account the resurrection. Because if, 
if the original question that got us there was, what if they found Jesus still in the tomb? What if there was no resurrection? Would that change your life much? To which Paul is saying, it should drastically change your life. But if you can't imagine your life changing much, we're like, oh, I guess they found Jesus. That's a good indicator you're probably living the YOLO life, that you're living for the here and now. But he's saying the resurrection, the reality of that should change everything because the Christian should be living such a sacrificial life, knowing that this isn't all there is, that there's all of eternity to come. And so the Christian, it puts things in perspective, this little tiny bit, in light of all of eternity. And so he's saying, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, that our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He goes on at 17 through 19, it's on the screen. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. That's to say, those that have died, they're dead. In verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we, being Christians, are of all people to be most pitied. The reality of eternity should drive the Christians in this life to live differently. They should be living so sacrificially. And what's he saying there? He's saying if, if there is no resurrection, there is no eternal life, you should pity Christians most of all because pity them because they're, they're giving money to church that they could have been spending on themselves. Pity the Christian who's having awkward spiritual conversations with their neighbors, coworkers, and friends when they could have been talking about the weather and the game. He's saying, pity those that are, that are giving time and serving. If, it's not, if Jesus did not rise from the dead and there is no eternal life, pity those that are living so sacrificially here and now. You understand that? What implications does the resurrection? I'm telling you, if that tomb is still full and Jesus did not rise, I am not your pastor and I am not here next Sunday. I'm turkey hunting, right? Like the implications that why would you make all these sacrifices if there is no hope of eternal life? There is no eternity with God. Another way of explaining this, Luke and I were talking in the office, it's like if there's no hope in eternal life, it's kind of like later today, if you go through the dessert line, at your, your family Easter, and you take just a, a small slice of pie. You're like, I'm, you know, I'm going to exercise a little discipline. But you do that with the hope that you and that pie are going to have all week together. And what he's saying is, pity the person that takes just a little sliver and then has their family eat the whole pie. Right? Pity the person like that just like limits and then their family comes along, roommates, people, and they just eat the whole thing. So you should feel bad for them. They should have taken a bigger slice of the pie. Like if that's all there was, you should have went all out. You should have just grabbed the pan and a fork and just ate it. Some of y'all making plans, right? Like we're not talking about pie here though. We're talking about, about life. And it's like, if this is all there is, pity those that don't just do whatever their heart desires but they show some restraint and a desire to, to live for eternity. What does Paul say to those that, 
that live in that YOLO camp that think that this life is all there is, he would say this in verse 34. He would tell them, he would say, I'm going to imagine the tone in verse 34. Paul talking to that YOLO camp, wake up. Wake up from your drunken stupor. As is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So he says in verse 4, he's saying, wake up, are you drunk? Are you a fool? Do you, do you not understand a single thing about God that you would think that this life is all that matters? Really? Wake up. He says, stop it, because he said in verse 20, but the fact is that Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also Christ shall be made alive. He's saying, wake up because Jesus has risen. That's what we're celebrating, the resurrection. And the reality of what we celebrate today ensures that there is life after life. That's where the YOLO phrase gets wrong. I, I don't know if you can start a new one, YOLT, hashtag YOLT, like you only live twice, right? Like there's not just once, but you, there's eternity that's coming. And so which life are you living for? Those are really your options. Are you living for this life or are you living for the life to come? And really, being a college pastor for a number of years, you see students that get out from their parents' kind of wing and like they get to determine their own. And I'm telling you that if you're here and you can't imagine how the resurrection affects your life, you're kind of living for this life only. And I've been there and I'm telling you, I hurt on your behalf. Because this life, trying to pursue those things, those worldly things, I'm you're never going to have a vehicle that works like you should. Like you're never going to have the, the enough house, enough money. Relationships are going to continue to disappoint you. If you're living for this life only, it's a miserable existence. Every Thursday, I drive back from, that I'm at Salt Company on campus. You drive back downtown, and you see the YOLO life played out. I'm telling you, it's no life. If you try and do that, Jesus would say, if that's what you're trying to do is maximize this life, if you're trying to save your life, you're trying to, you're going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, whoever says, you know, I'm going to use this little bit we're here. I'm going to die to myself and I'm going to live for eternity. Jesus said, that is the one who's actually going to find it. Because all of a sudden that eternity puts things in perspective. It puts things in perspective. It puts finals week in perspective. It puts your housing projects in perspective. It, it puts the relational tension in perspective. In light of eternity, it brings about this amazing perspective that is so freeing. But if I had to be honest with you, <laughs> as much as I love to be black and white, are you living for this life or are you living for that? Just confession. Sometimes I'm like, both. <laughs> I want the best of this life and I want the best of that. It's just me that tries to straddle the fence sometimes. It's like, yeah, I want to live for eternity, but, but if I could have a farm where I could shoot big deer, that would be good too. 
Like, I want to live for eternity, and I want to, and I want to give, I want to do those things, but I also kind of want some of this, too. Just me, your pastor, having an honest moment up here, right? But like this desire that's like, as much as I want to be black and white, you're living for eternity or living for, for, for right now. Sometimes I find even myself kind of living uh, between them. And so here's a kind of a question that gets at that if you're in that camp with me, is would you want Jesus to come back? Like Jesus said, I'm, he's resurrected and I'm coming back for you. How many of you, Jesus said, hey, Steve, you want me to come back tomorrow? This is Jesus talking. And you're like, well, I mean, tomorrow's a little busy, right? Like, I got these finals. I'd kind of really like to get through and get my diploma. Like, how many of you are like, Jesus, I love you. Don't get me wrong. Like, I'm excited about eternity. Can we just wait until after family vacation? Because we got a deposit on the cruise, right? And it's a Disney cruise. Can Somebody really has a Disney cruise schedule. So I'm just grabbing that as an illustration. But like, dude, are you excited about Jesus coming back? Man, that begins to reveal about your heart. Are you more excited about this life or the life that's to come? And I know I'm not the only one because Kenny Chesney, he wrote and sung a song that hit number one in 2008. (laughs) And this song, it is so terrible. Please don't listen to it, but I'm going to quote it. He says, everybody wants to go to heaven, get their wings and fly around. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go now. And even in the end, he's like, I think I speak for the crowd. Nobody wants to go now. See, this idea that, oh, we're excited about heaven, but I'm more excited about this life. I'm telling you, when you read how Paul lives his life, again, he's going to tell the Corinthians, he's like, I've been beaten and shipwrecked. And and this is why Paul would tell the Philippians, he's like, I'm telling you, to live is Christ, which is suffering and challenging and serving. To die is gain. If you would ask Paul, you want Jesus to come back? Yes. Here's the reality. Eternal perspective, this idea of eternity, valuing that, desiring that, doesn't mean you don't do anything in this life. Doesn't mean you don't buy anything. Doesn't mean you don't take vacation. It just informs how you do those things. Does that make sense? You're still going to be in this world, but you don't have to be of it. It just informs how you do those things. And so when somebody cuts you off in traffic, eternal perspective informs how you respond. Internal, eternal perspective informs how you engage in, in disagreements with someone you're dating or your spouse. And eternal perspective, the, the reality of all this informs how you respond on these little things here. Does that make sense? And the only reason that we're able to have eternal perspective is because Jesus Christ died and from there rose, proving that there is life after life. And so this period of death is merely a segue from this life to the next life. Apart from Jesus, 
rising from the grave, apart from Resurrection Sunday, this is all there is. But because Jesus died and rose, we now know that there is life after life. But to be clear, Jesus, his resurrection, opened the door to eternal life in heaven with the Father, but just because that door is open means you still need to walk through it because there is life after life, eternity. But that can be spent in either heaven, with God, or apart from God, in hell. And so it's not a given that when you die, you just get to go eternally be with God. Especially in light of a life that that was lived wanting nothing to do with God in this life. And despite the common misconception that happens in our culture and certainly even within our churches, it's not what you do in this life, it's not what you do that determines where you spend the next one. I'm going to say that again because I think this gets lost a lot. Be clear. The Bible tells you, and we're going to quote some scripture, that it's not what you do in this life that determines where you're going to spend the next life in heaven or hell. It's how are you going to respond to Jesus? Meaning Romans 6.23, the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. What that means is Jesus was nailed to a cross. He took the punishment that we deserve. What scripture is saying, that is a free gift. It is offered to you. It's not what you're going to do. It's about what he's done. His blood was shed. He was perfect, but he died in our place that we could be forgiven. It's not about us doing good works. It's about what has been done through Jesus Christ. And so it's how will you respond to Jesus? Romans 10 Verse 9 says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. It's asking God to forgive you for living this, like this life is the only one that matters. It's asking God to forgive you for letting your life revolve around your desires, your selfishness. Say, Lord, please forgive me. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross. My trust is in you. And through that, God's saying, now you have a relationship with me in this life and the life to come. Which is why Paul goes on to say, in light of that, in light of that reality, in verse 55, some of the most powerful words in all of scripture, he says, taunting death. He says, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is law, but thanks be to God, in verse 57, thanks be to God who gives us victory, again, through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is through Jesus that death has been defeated. doesn't hold us down. That it's through Jesus we can have eternal life. Do you understand the significance of the resurrection. And I'm telling you, church, it's been a joy to reflect on that this week and bring about an eternal perspective in light of the challenges and what's there in this life. And it's there that he kind of ends the chapter. If you have your, your Bible open, he ends with, therefore, in light of that, 
in light of this eternal perspective in verse 58, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord, the Lord you labor is not in vain. Knowing that in the Lord that your labor is not in vain. It's because of what Jesus has done, because that we can have a relationship with God. Now, in light of that relationship, we labor and we do those things. And it is not in vain. And again, he's referring to this reality of eternity. Guys, I want, I want all of this the fact that there is life after life because of the resurrection to put in perspective what we do in this life. And that's the only way that it makes sense. And apart from that, apart from this reality, he's saying pity them. But because of this reality, it informs everything. This is why, apart from Easter, We've got nothing here, but because of what Jesus has done, what we celebrate today, comes the whole basis of our entire faith in the resurrection, in the empty tomb. I'm going to pray for us as the band comes up, and we're going to have an opportunity to respond in worship. God, we do. We thank you that you sent Jesus that he made a way for life after life. And Lord, would you even now be working in our hearts to create that eternal perspective with the reality of the tomb, God, we just empty tomb. Would that put things in perspective? Perhaps conflict we have at work, perhaps conflict we had in the parking lot on the drive-in. Would the reality of our risen Savior put things in perspective? And we'd, we, like Paul, be able to tell the world and all the things, and even death itself, where is your victory? Where is your sting? God, thank you for the power that is in that and the perspective that comes from the cross. And it's our joy to just respond in worship, hearts surrendered, in light of your glory and what it is you've done. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for defeating death, and thank you for adopting us into the family through the blood of Jesus. And so we worship you in his name. Amen.